Good morning. Last week I handed out a um, little sheet from Dr. Snowberger on uh, on the uh, growth of Jesus. And uh, did you guys have a chance to look through that, read that? What'd you think? You know what? I forgot to to bring the extras, but I can I can get you one. All right. Yep. I can do that. All right. Any other um, thoughts or questions on the human? Mainly, we talked about the humanity of Christ last week, um, but we also talked about his deity. We tend to minimize his humanity and make him some um, something out to be that he is not. So. Um, All right. Well, we'll uh, move into our topic for this morning, which is the work of Christ. We move from the person of Christ to the work of Christ, and uh, this has to do with why Jesus came. Why is that He actually came to this earth? Last week we answered the question, "Who is Jesus?" And um, so we wanted to look at Him from from a biblical perspective that He is both God and man. But ultimately, he didn't come just to be a person, but actually to die, to make a payment, to make an atonement, and that's what we're going to spend our time talking about today, both his obedience, his, his perfect obedience, his perfect life, but, and also his perfect sacrifice, his death. So let me begin with a, a word of prayer, and uh, we'll ask for God's help as we get into our study. Father, we acknowledge You as the source of all uh, good things and of all truth and wisdom. And so we turn to You now recognizing our insufficiency that apart from from You, we know nothing, we can do nothing. So we ask for Your help as we look into Your Word and try to understand the atonement of Jesus Christ. And uh, we pray that You'd help us to recognize the importance of it, the... um, the response that we ought to have to it. And we do pray, along with what we have just sung, that that You would send our Savior quickly to uh, redeem His church. And and we long to be with Him and to spend uh, eternity with Him, to see His face. And so we ask for uh, His coming to be soon. Until that time, give us the strength and the courage to stand up and to do what's right, to become more holy as we are called to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We first want to begin with the foundation of Christ's work. And we can't talk about Christ's work apart from God's love. That is, that God is the one who showed His love by sending Jesus Christ. And and this would ultimately answer the question, why did Christ come. Why did He come? And we could say He came because God loved us enough to send Him to die in our place. John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, makes the following declaration. No treatment of the atonement can be properly oriented that does not trace its source to the free and sovereign love of God. And uh, if we were to if we were to survey some texts of Scripture, you would recognize this quickly. For example, John 3.16, God loved the world that He gave His Son. 
and uh, and and uh, that through him, through belief in him, we can have life. Romans 5:8, God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8:32, He who did not spare up His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. I mean, those are just three examples of the love that God shows in sending Jesus Christ to take our place. So the foundation of the atonement is the love of God. Next, we need to look at the necessity of the atonement. Why did the atonement need to happen? Um, or we could ask it this way. Was, was it necessary that Christ die for us? Was it necessary that He atone for our sins? Or could God just simply snack, snap His fingers and say, I save you. Okay, you, you are eternally saved. And, um, and, and that's the question we want to address now. Um, could he just simply look at our sins and say, you know what, it's okay, I'm just going to overlook that. It's okay. But we, we've talked about this before with, in regard to, um, with the example of the courtroom scene where if we were to stand before a judge on trial and because of our, because of our crime, uh, the, the judge looked at us and the evidence and saw that clearly we were convicted and as a result of that, the, if a judge were to say, you know what, I'm just going to overlook that and, and not going to charge you for the crime that you've committed, I said that that would make that judge an unjust judge, right? For him to just simply overlook it, it would be unwise, unfair of him to do that. He has to have a, a legitimate reason to pass over that person who committed the crime, and that's uh, it shows you that the um, atonement was necessary. It, it is mandatory. In order for God to save us from our sins, there had to be someone who took our place, who shed blood for us, because as we know from Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is what? No There's no remission of sins. Okay, So we can't have forgiveness or, or a wiping away of sins without the shedding of blood. And so someone had to die. And it couldn't just be anyone. Just like in the Old Testament, we see that there was a spotless lamb. We'll see that here in just a second. So Christ's work was necessary, first of all, because God is holy. Okay, If God were not holy, then perhaps he could, if He were just some arbitrary God, do whatever He wanted apart from any laws, then, then, he could just do whatever, uh, then He could just simply save a person if He wanted to save a person. But God is holy. And He demands that sin be paid for. And therefore, our sin has to be paid for. second reason that Christ's work is necessary um, is because of our sin. That is, not one of us can atone for our own sins or not one of us can atone for someone else's sins. And you're not going to find that in every religion. Uh, lots of other religions teach that that you can atone for your own sins if you just certainly if you do enough things or if after that person dies if we can help atone for their sins by doing certain things and and praying and all this but because of our sin because we are utterly sinful and because God is ultimately holy there has to be a work of Christ um, Hebrews chapter two let's turn there because we're going to see a couple passages here in Hebrews that speaks specifically to our topic today, Hebrews chapter 2. 
there is to be salvation, then God's wrath has to be satisfied. Uh, that that is what salvation is about. It's about God's wrath being satisfied, and and we can't satisfy God's wrath on our own. So Hebrews chapter two verse ten. Would someone read verses ten and then skip down and read verse seventeen? Yes. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sons for sins of the people. All right. Anybody else have another translation other than the New American Standard? That that last phrase in verse 17. What does that say? Another translation. Reconciliation. Okay. Reconciliation. Anything else? All right, some of the other translations I think have atoning sacrifice. Anybody have any idea what propitiation is? Okay, good. It's a satisfaction of God's wrath. So so he Christ died, he had to die verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren to be incarnate so that he could be a faithful high priest by giving himself becoming a propitiation that is satisfying the, the wrath of God. The wrath that was due to come upon us was taken off of us and put on Christ because Christ was made sin for us. Um, so Christ had to come. The, the, the work of Christ was necessary. And uh, we see this when we think back to the Old Testament and the sacrifices that were due because those were really a shadow of what would come with the Messiah. When God instituted this system of sacrifice, it would ultimately point forward to a perfect sacrifice, a perfect lamb. And um, through the the law and the prophets, God would show repeatedly to the people that their sins needed to be paid for, that they needed to have some satisfaction, a substitutionary sacrifice. All right, so we're going to look at four characteristics of the sacrifices in the Old Testament that provided atonement for the people. And the first is that the sacrifice was voluntary. It was voluntary. A person was not coerced to sacrifice. If they were coerced, it would make the sacrifice invalid. They had to voluntarily give of of this sacrifice. And that's why you see these constant pleas by God and the prophets to come and bring a good sacrifice, a good and right sacrifice. Um, you need to do it voluntarily. Secondly, it needed to be substitutionary. That is, in place of. It, the, the sacrifice was offered in place of the guilty party. Um, this is why the Old Testament worshiper was required to place his hands on the head of the animal as the animal was being slaughtered. This was a a symbolic transfer of the guilt of the sinner to the animal. That that the animal was now taking the judgment that the sinner deserved. And um, then thirdly, the sacrifice had to be spotless. It had to be without defect. God required perfect purity. He didn't want an injured or blemished animal. 
that wouldn't be acceptable to him. Only a healthy one would be acceptable. In other words, the Old Testament worshiper was sick. He was sinful. And in his place, he needed an animal that was healthy. You see, someone to stand in his place. Not another blemished creature like he, but a, but a healthy one. Number four, um, the parallelism doesn't quite work here. I probably should have put something like deadly maybe. I didn't know how to... just didn't sound right put deadly there. So I put death. That is, the, the sacrifice had to die. It had to involve a loss of blood. That is, in, in exchange for the blood that should have come, that, it, that should have been shed by the worshiper, um, the, the animal had to have his blood shed instead. And all this Old Testament activity culminated in the Day of Atonement, which was the once-per-year time when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would bring the blood of a sacrifice that was offered for the sins of the people and, and thereby have access to the throne of grace, to have access to the presence of God. But turn to Hebrews chapter 10 because what we find here is that these, this blood of all these animals, and if you remember at the start of the temple, there were thousands of animals that were slaughtered that day. When, when Solomon brought all these, these animals and had them slaughtered to show how much they were concerned about the, the holiness of God, despite all the blood that flowed throughout that day and all of the, the time of the Old Testament, that blood did all, ultimately did not fix the problem. And the key word there is ultimately. Okay? It only gave them a temporary, uh, a temporary atonement for their sins. And this is shown here in chapter 10 of Hebrews in verses 1 through 4. Let me read these for you. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. See that? See what I was saying there? It doesn't ultimately change them. It doesn't ultimately satisfy God's wrath. It can't. Even though they're offered year after year, it can't finally make them perfect. Verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. See, if they actually did something permanently, then they could stop offering them. But the Old Testament sacrifices had to keep coming day after day, year after year. Verse 3, But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. See, this gives us a purpose of those sacrifices. There is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what was the purpose, according to verse 3, of the Old Testament sacrifice? Was it to give final cleansing? What was the purpose? It was to, to, to bring to memory, to recall the weight of my sin. And I think if we would do this even once, I'm not suggesting we do, but I'm saying if we ever had to offer a sacrifice even once, we would see the weight of our sin. That that innocent, blameless, spotless animal had to die because of me. Because of of my sin, and um, and and uh, but but we don't we don't see that as regularly. We don't we don't um, we don't offer sacrifices day after day, 
And that's why I always, I constantly am pointing you and myself back to the cross, that we need to constantly remember what Christ did for us. If we recognize the weight of our sin that Christ had to die because of us, it will sober us into thinking rightly about our sin, that it is an offense before God and deserves His judgment, which is ultimately why Christ had to die. So, um, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, there there was cleansing. Okay, I, I said there's no permanent cleansing, but there was cleansing. It was more of an outward cleansing, though. But ultimately, what needed to be changed was the heart. And that could only come through a, a perfect, uh, timeless sacrifice, which we're going to see here when we get to the New Testament. All right, any questions on the foundation of the atonement, the reason we have the atonement, the necessity of it? Um... Or um, the Old Testament sacrificial system, Bill. When you first started, you, you asked the question, which I think was the question. You said, "Could God?" Right. Could God save us apart from an atonement? Right, and it would have been, it would have gone against God's purposes if He had not had the atonement, or saved somebody a different way when He had already purposed it. And uh, yeah, that's exactly right. All right, any other thoughts or questions on what we've talked about so far? Yes, Mark. Is that is that what they say? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the funny thing about evolution is it has, you know, they they do it based on the scientific method like we talked, and it has to be observable and repeatable, and and so far haven't observed or repeated any of that that stuff. So, all right, what's that? Yeah, yeah, they know when the world was started though. All right, let's uh, turn our attention now to the the New Testament now and. We move from the Old Testament sacrifices now to the centrality of the one sacrifice, the cross. And uh, and that's when we really start to see the, the atonement of Christ being fulfilled. Uh, in Galatians chapter 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that they might receive full right as sons. So there's a historic reality of the cross that at a specific point in time, God recognized the perfect time in which Jesus would come to the earth and that He would die. And, uh, and, and that's when He sent Christ. And since it was a once-in-time thing and it was done by a perfect representative, then Christ cannot and does not get re-sacrificed. There's, there's no continuing act of atonement that has to be done. That is, there doesn't have to be another sacrifice and another sacrifice. That's why I say I don't encourage us to go out and sacrifice animals that wouldn't do anything for us. 
it would actually show that Christ's work was insufficient, that he needed something else on top of it. And so we want to um, turn our attention now to the nature of the atonement. The nature of the atonement. That is, that it is a completed work. It has been accomplished. But how has it been accomplished? How has our atonement taken place? I've already alluded to this several times, but let me just read you Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The primary emphasis of Christ's work of redemption is not on us, but really on the Father. Christ had to appease the Father. That is, He had to satisfy His his wrath. He had to perfectly meet all the demands of the law. And so, He came to the earth to to um, to live and to to follow all of God's commands, and then to die as a as a sacrifice for us. And and theologians break these down into two main categories, and I'll try to explain them to you. The first is called. Let's see, do I have it on here? Yeah. Let me see what I missed here. One second. Okay, so completed work done through Christ's obedience, Philippians 2.8. Alright, the first way that theologians break down the work of Jesus Christ is called active obedience. It's active obedience. And you can imagine the second way in which he, he, um, His atonement is, is used is called passive obedience. Okay, so we'll talk about both of them. First, His active obedience. That means that Christ perfectly obeyed all that the Father demanded of Him. That in everything that God said to do, Christ did. Everything that God said not to do, Christ didn't do. He didn't didn't break any trespasses. He fulfilled every single thing that God had, had told Him to do. Did you ever wonder why Christ didn't just uh, come into the world as an adult, kind of just zapped onto the earth as an adult and then die and then raise and then go back to heaven? Why come as a baby, live for 33 years, and then die? And the answer is right here. Because there is more to our to the atonement than just His sacrifice. That Christ had to come and and live a perfect life so that He could be our representative. And this is important because, as I've mentioned before in Romans chapter 5, He is our representative as a perfect, um, as a person who's lived a perfect life. In this passage, Romans chapter 5, we looked at it before. Adam, because Adam sinned, we are all sinners. We take on his sinful nature. He is our representative in that way. But then the second Adam came. Jesus Christ. And because Christ perfectly obeyed all who are represented by Him, okay, now that's key difference here. It's not everybody in the entire world. Otherwise, everybody would be saved. All who are represented by Him, that is, all who put their faith in Him, are able to take upon themselves His righteousness. That is, God sees them as being righteous even though they are not. And um, so as Adam sinned, we are sinners. As Christ obeyed, we are obedient. And so it was Christ's ob- obedience that, that really uh, led up to His sacrifice, that, 
by the way, his obedience included his sacrifice. Philippians 2.8 says that he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. So, so it included everything from the time he was a young boy all the way till, till he w- was sacrificed. All right, so that's his active obedience. Does that make sense? He lived a perfect life. If you want to find out more about this, uh, Pastor Ken Brown did a series last summer at our church on Wednesday night, and we have those recordings on the Internet. You could download those. And he, he basically uses his whole four weeks to talk about Christ's active obedience and practically how that should look in our lives as a result. All right, now his passive obedience. This is a little bit more misleading. I don't think it's the best term that theologians give to this. Other people call it his punitive obedience. Uh, That is, he had to pay a penalty for it. But basically the idea is that Jesus took on the penalty of death for our sins. Okay, When we think passive, what do we think? No action, just kind of laying down like a mat. That's not what's going on here. Okay, So don't think of it in those terms. Rather, think of it as he, he was taking upon himself judgment. That's passive obedience. And obviously, we, that's, that's what we often rec, uh, consider when we think of Christ's atonement, this part of it, that he had to die. That's why I, want, I spent so much time on the first part, his active obedience, because we don't tend to think about that as much. Okay, it doesn't mean that Jesus was involuntary. Um, in fact, in John chapter 10, um, well, I thought I had that on there. John chapter 10, he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. No one takes it from me. So even in his death, which we call passive obedience, he's, he was active, right? And uh, Isaiah 53 uh, talks all about Christ being our suffering servant that he, he took our, our place. Hebrews 5 says that he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So Christ obeyed and he perfectly obeyed throughout his life. He perfectly responded to suffering and ultimately laid down his life for us. All right, any questions on the... Uh, the active and passive obedience of Christ. Jonathan. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, he had the power. It, he said. He said. Uh, what was it when he was com- about to be arrested? He said, "If I wanted to, I could call ten legions of angels." And have them come and wipe these guys out, but I'm not going to do that. And so in that sense, he was passive, but, but again, you see his activity, that he was actively laying down his life um, through suffering and, and, and death. That's, good. That's a good uh, example. Thank you. All right, let's talk about the language of Christ's atonement. Um, Christ's atoning work came about as a result of His perfect obedience, but but what did the atonement actually do? And uh, John Murray, who has a, as I think, the best work on the atonement, um, he breaks it down into four main categories, that Christ's atonement did four main things. And the first is, is that it was sacrificial. It was a sacrificial work. 
And uh, we understand this. We saw this in the Old Testament. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you, were once, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Romans 5, 9, Since we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? We sing about Christ's blood often. And, and the point there is that Christ had to die. He had to be our sacrifice just like the, the animals in the Old Testament. And um, so this suggests that not only was Christ willing to die, but also that His actual physical death was consistent with the Old Testament system of sacrifice that was designed to atone for sins. Christ being the ultimate atonement. So first, sacrificial. It is both effective and permanent. Alright, that would have helped if I put that up just a little bit earlier. All right, next. Redemption. That is, He redeemed us. When we think of redemption, we should think of of, um, of kind of prison language or marketplace language where, where uh, Christ actually had to buy us. We as God's people were, slave, were slaves to sin. And in order for us to be, to be brought to God... There had to be a payment that was made a ransom, and and uh, there was some there's some payment that required our freedom, and Jesus was the one who paid that ransom. The scriptures talk about Christ's death as a ransom. Matthew twenty twenty eight, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Revelation five nine, you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God out of every tribe and language and people and nation. It wasn't that He just died as a sacrifice, but His blood was used as a payment. As a down, not as a down payment, but as a full payment of our, of our salvation. So, redemption. Then next is Reconciliation. Reconciliation, that, that Christ reconciled us to God. You think of reconciliation when you, when you uh, have conflict, okay? maybe between countries or maybe you and some, some neighbor or something. You need to have reconciliation. There needs to be a coming together. There's a broken relationship there. And so Christ restores the relationship between man and God. On the screen here we have Romans 5.10. If, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So, this gulf that is fixed between us and God, this alienation that there is between us and God, has been, uh, has been gapped, has been filled in by Jesus Christ reconciling us. And then fourth, justification. The legal term here that's used for our salvation, Christ paid the penalty that was due to us. We had real legal guilt. And as a result, we had a penalty that we had to pay. But instead of us paying the penalty, which we can only do through an eternity in hell, 
Christ stood in our place and paid the penalty for us. So we have in Acts 13, 30, uh, I think this is supposed to be 39, through Him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And then 1 Corinthians 6:11, you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. So, when we think of Christ's atonement, what we should recognize is that there's no action being done by us. Okay? Christ's atonement is done by Him. That He is spanning the gulf between us and God. He's not throwing a rope out and we just grab onto the other end and pull ourselves in. Okay? It, he's doing all the work. He's the one who's laying Himself down as a sacrifice. Ransom, paying the ransom. He, he's the one who's reconciling us to God. The conflict that God... Remember last week we talked... God hates sinners, and sinners hate God. He, he's reconciling those two conflicting parties, and He's justifying us. He's declaring us as righteous. That's the idea of justification. Alright? So, when we see the atonement in these terms, it helps us to see that it was all of God. Any questions or comments on these four concepts? All right, there are several theories of the atonement I want to get through quickly. The first is called the ransom to Satan theory. That um, if we look wrongly at the atonement, then we're going to have a wrong understanding of Christ. We're not going to appreciate the cross as well. This ransom to Satan theory is basically the idea that, that we are held hostage by Satan. And in order for us to be set free, Christ had to pay a penalty of our sin to Satan. Okay, that Satan was the one that was holding us hostage in bondage, and so when Christ died, this was the payment that Satan wanted. So then he hands over the payment to Satan. Um, I hope you recognize a problem with this, and that is that there was no need for us to be reconciled to Satan. Okay, there's no reason for us to, to be reconciled where Satan would have to let us free as if he is the king of the universe, as if he has uh, power over all things. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Okay, so, so this ransom to Satan theory is, is invalid. It's not... Um, the reason Christ died was not to satisfy the wrath of Satan or to, to somehow appease him so that he would release us. It is to satisfy the wrath of God. Second, the governmental theory teaches that Christ's death was a deterrent, that Christ didn't die as a substitution for sinners, but as an example of what kind of demands God has when someone sins. So, let me give you an example of someone, what happens to them in the eyes of God when a person sins. And so here's Jesus on the cross. The only problem with that is Christ didn't sin. Hey, why use an innocent person? Why not use the worst of all creatures or even the best of all creatures? That is the best of those who sinned. Put him up on the cross and say, this is how much God hates sin. But that's not the point of the cross. It wasn't to give us an example of God, how much God hates sin. He does hate sin. 
And there are many texts that state that Christ died for sinners, that He died in our place. This next one's called the moral influence or just think example theory. And all that says is that the reason Christ died was to be an example for us. Okay, And, and there is some, some truth to that. Um, 1 John 4, 9 says, If Christ laid down His life for us, then we ought to lay down our lives for other people. And so there's true, that's true, but that's not the main point of the atonement. That's what we can't get confused. And that's what these people do. They say this is the main point or the primary point of the atonement. That Christ died as an example. That's not the point. The point is uh, this fourth one, and that's called substitution, or um, we could call it penal substitution, that Jesus took the sins of His people, substituted Himself in their place, taking upon Himself the judgment and the wrath that was due to us. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins and His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we were healed. Okay, so, so this is the reason that Christ died. Certainly He did die as an example. That's not the main reason. The main reason He died was as our substitution. Second. Corinthians 5.21 Well, let me just read these. Romans 3.24-26 We are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a, here's that word, propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then, perhaps a more familiar verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Okay, and there, I hope you see both the passive and the active obedience of Christ there. See that? He he who knew no sin became sin for us. That's the passive obedience that He took upon the penalty that we deserved so that we might become the active obedience, the righteousness of God in Him. Alright, let me uh, quickly go through these last few things. First, is Jesus' atonement the only atonement that saves and you shouldn't have to think about this one too long. <clears throat> and the answer is yes. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name um, under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus' atonement is satisfactory to take away the wrath that was due you from God. Um let me see if I've got time to go through this. I think I'm going to skip over this part. Um, I was hoping to, to have time for this. So let me skip skip through this and perhaps we'll come back to it if we have time another day. What does it mean for us? Okay, this is the last 
part. Um, this is basically the application of Christ's atonement. Why is Christ's atonement so important for us? How do we apply this doctrine? Number one is the basis of our salvation. Apart from Christ's atonement, we cannot be saved. Number two, Christ's atonement gives us assurance that our sins are completely forgiven. That we had nothing to it. That on our best days, we still need God's grace to save us. In our worst days, we're, we're never beyond the reach of God's grace. It is God who comes and does the work on behalf uh, or through Jesus Christ on behalf of us. Number three, the atonement keeps us from working for our salvation. We understand it rightly that, that, that Christ's sacrifice was done apart from us, that His rant, buying us through the ransom that He had to pay to, to God with His blood, that the reconciliation, the justification, that was all of Christ. And therefore, it, it moves us out of the, the, the center of the picture, which is where we ought to be. Christ has to be in the center. And it should produce joy in our hearts that, that we don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve Christ's sacrifice in any way. We, he didn't look at us and say, wow, you, you're really special. I'm going to do something uh, special for you because you're such a good person. We deserved judgment just like every other creature. And so it should produce joy in us when we recognize where we deserve to be. And then it should inspire us to, to, to love like God loves us. We love Him because He first loved us. We also love other people because God loved us in, in the same way. We're happy to be forgiving and, and, um, and show generosity and favor to people even if they don't deserve it. And then next, it cultivates humility in us. Have this attitude that was also in Christ that He he humbled Himself and became obedient unto, unto death should humble us. And then finally, teaches us about joyful suffering. That Christ in His suffering, did what was good and right, and as a result, He teaches us how to live in the same way. And First uh, Peter 3, I put that there because the text of First Peter talks primarily about the idea of suffering first and then glory. And that's really the life of Jesus in a nutshell. Suffering first and then glory. And Peter's argument is, we should not be surprised when our life is the same way. Suffering first and then glory. Uh, we, we like to skip over that suffering part and get right to the glory. And so sometimes we, we try to grab glory that, that we want now. And, and the point that Peter's making there is, um, you know, if Christ suffered, we will suffer. And, uh, but don't be in despair when you suffer because glory will come. All right, any questions or uh, comments on the atonement of Christ? Bill.
Yeah. Right. Right. And the resurrection is what um, validates that God actually accepted his his uh, payment. Um, the reason we know that God accepted that is because he was raised. And um, certainly when Paul summarizes the Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Christ died for our sins and that He was buried and He rose again. So that those things are included in the Gospel. Yes, Trish. Ransom to Satan, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. Um All right, any final thoughts, questions? All right, let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful for Jesus Christ and His finished work. We can add nothing to it. And even our faith and repentance are a gift from You. We can't take credit for them because uh, apart from You, we can do nothing. And so really, they're just a response of what Christ has already done in us. That is the, the work of regeneration of taking us who are spiritually dead and making us alive spiritually. We praise You for Your grace and for the cross of Jesus Christ that He was willing to go and to, to, um, to die in our place. We thank You that You uh, showed us that You accepted His payment through the resurrection as validation that He is the Messiah and that His sacrifice is enough. And we thank You now that He has ascended to Your right hand and is uh, reigning over the earth. And one day it will be clear to all when He reigns on the earth, on David's throne, at the Millennial Kingdom. And we pray that that day would come quickly. In Jesus' name, Amen.